Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the NovPod on Calls. This is hosted, as always, by Anesthesia on Air in association with the Royal College of Anaesthetists. I'm one of your co-hosts, Owen Dore. I'm a Thames Valley Anaesthetic Registrar and with me is Duncan Kemp. Today we welcome into the studio Rosanna Grimes, who, as well as having a passion for education, shows a passion for being an anaesthetic reg. And so we're getting some good discussions about who's on the on-call with you, what your on-call entails, what you might be doing at a cardiac arrest, and then finally some well-being tips. As always, please have a look through the bio for some further reading and jump-off points that we've put in there. So without further ado, here's the episode. On the on-call episodes, we've got our friend and colleague Rosanna Grimes in the studio with us. Hi, Rosie. Hello. It's or very Rosanna. Formal introduction. It's the North Pod way. That it's is the North Pod way. We have got an episode of on calls where hopefully we can impart our wisdom onto the novices, whether or not they do on calls after their IAC or whether or not they're shadowing on calls when they start, so they can get to grips with what it involves and why you might get a bleep at 4am, for example. Do you have any memories from when you started off doing your own calls? We had very different experiences because my CT1 was in a place where you don't go to cardiac arrests, peri-arrests, etc. That's all ITU. I just remember being completely overwhelmed by this CPOD board that was this computerised list with about 30 cases on it, all in different colours. And I was thinking, I don't understand what all of most of these operations are. Mm. I don't actually understand what part of the body that bit's on. (laughs) I mean, to this day, I just look at the specialty. Do you have any novice on-call memories? I remember being part of a cardiac arrest team where I had to change the environment and pull the bed out and put an eye gel in. And I then had one look, couldn't intubate, and my reg intubated for the first time. I remember looking at that reg and thinking, wow, you are you are <laughs> the best. <laughs> How did you do that? They were then like, thank you for being such a vital part of that. And it was really nice to think that I'd spent three months get my skills up so that I could be a valued member of that team. That's so nice. What are the other challenges that you think you face as a novice on call? For me, the unpredictability of it was one of the things that made me feel quite anxious, not knowing what other people would expect of me. And that feeling of, oh, well, I've passed my IAC now, I've been signed off, I should be okay to do this, but what if I'm not? There's always that kind of imposter syndrome thing where you think someone's going to turn around and go, oh my God, how did you get signed off you shouldn't be on call (laughs) I think that kind of when can I ask for help am I asking for help too much am I asking for help too little judging that I found quite tricky you want to appear as if you are safe the higher up you go you realize the more you do say this is my plan are you okay that then makes them feel way more confident in you and your skills than if you were not calling them yeah absolutely and I think even now working with an SHO I absolutely love it when they verbalize everything and tell me everything that's going on whereas at the time I thought oh maybe I'm being too much here maybe I should just be cracking on and getting on with it on my own. Goes on to another challenges of the anaesthetic on call there is so much grey area nothing ever quite fits there's always a bit of uncertainty and particularly the stuff you find away from the theatre complex this isn't quite fitting into anything I've experienced yet. You do have these people who want you to flourish and they have those experiences, so you can always call on them. Just because you're running around with a bleep 
and you're getting the calls doesn't mean you can't talk to someone. And I think someone once said about on calls with anaesthetics, it can be quite feast or famine. You are either very busy or actually it's there's a few more chills on calls that I've had, but you still need to be rest and prepared for if it was to kick off at 4am because then you are making high fidelity decisions at quite a tiring environment. But I do like what you both said about the issue being that if you get taken away and outside of your environment because this is a place of safety you know where everything is you know what the roles are and when you go onto the wards things can be a bit more murky where's the suction where's the tube so just being aware that situational factors makes things twice as hard when you're on a ward than if you are doing anything in theatres means that if you are to do interventions it's much better to be in a place of safety such as theatres other challenges, I think, are the situational factors of normally in the team at night, making sure you've already spoken. If you hand over in theatres, you've gone over and said hello to your ODP team to know who's on working with you. And don't be afraid if you're in an environment that's non-theatre, ask them to come because they will have had usually 10 or 20 years of experience and say, oh, this is what we do. Yeah, because I think that's a big challenge, isn't it? It's, you won't necessarily know the systems and how they work, particularly out of hours. You may get, we'll go into this later, but calls to do things like central lines out of hours. Some places you may have seen that's done on the ward, but actually in your department, they bring the patient to theatres to do it in a place of safety. I would add to that and say, if a place does something in a way that you don't feel comfortable with, or you wouldn't normally do that, don't do it. Like yeah. if you don't want to do one on the ward, just bring the person to Absolutely. Theater. Mentioning of the ODP also brings on to the team that we have. And the anaesthetics team is, I'm biased, but probably the best team in the hospital. <laughs> You're definitely biased. Who is on call with you as a novice anaesthetist? Because it can vary based on site and location. I had a really senior reg. The setup was that there was a CT1 novice on CPOD. There was somebody on OBS who was junior reg level. Um, and obviously you didn't really interact with them at all. And then my general reg was ST6 or 7. So I just remember thinking that they were the absolute font of all knowledge and how would I ever get to that level? Yeah, and some fonts are more full than others, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, quite. If you've got a real issue, who do you call? You've got the consultant, probably Yay. at home, possibly in the hospital, depending possibly on so how far away they live. <laughs> And then we've also got other layers of support in other teams in the hospital. Theatre manager, ODP, our wonderful colleagues at site manager and outreach. And then we've got some other colleagues around ED, ITU, and then our own escalation tree, which is usually a senior reg or consultant. And I'd, I'd like to really emphasise that particularly as a novice and a junior anaesthetist, the consultant wants to know what's going on. Like we've said a few times throughout the podcast, if you think you should be calling, call. At worst, you'll disrupt their sleep a little bit, but they'll at least know you're being safe. Well, I don't think I've ever been told off for calling yeah. a consultant. No, neither have I. They want to be called. Even as just a registrar, I want to be called if my junior's having any thoughts or wants advice or any trouble. Coming on to on-call, why are we on-call? Who needs an anaesthetist on-call? Apparently everyone. Mm. <laughs> Genuinely. Everyone does. If the world was perfect, it would be one-to-one anaesthetist to patients. I guess you could divide it right into theatre stuff and non-theatre stuff. Well, that's a good way to go. So who needs us in theatre? You've got your emergency C-pod that should be running 
depending on what you're doing, whether or not you're in or out of theatre, various common on-call operations, usually gen surgery stuff, abscesses, appendices. Appendices. You've got various emergency stuff in theatres. You're probably going to be going pre-assessing those patients, working out some sort of order, and then who's ready, who's not ready, what order do the surgeons want to go in, getting them to speak to each other and decide that. You've got your other out-of-theatre stuff. The out-of-theatre stuff, if you were to give five things that you get called out for out-of-theatres. Well, the first one I would say is technically in that grey area where it's technically not in a theatre but it's in the theatre complex and that's the recovery I would account for that in theatre actually we'll say it in theatre it's bleeps to recovery and that's for a multitude of reasons and we've gone over that in our episode about recovery just to reiterate that when you are on call you are inheriting all the patients who are in recovery at that moment in time it can be a very useful moment to have a quick pop your head into recovery make sure the recovery nurses are happy and if there are any problems you can preempt them before they spiral and then you can also highlight it earlier in the shift your ica is like learning to drive a car as you get on with anesthetics you can see further and further down the roads part of recovery is going and seeing those patients and looking down the roads in two four six hours will you be in significant pain will you be post on nausea and vomiting recovery issues don't go away from logistics, they'll say to your recovery is completely full. Then if you send for a case and you finish it, you're going to be sat in theatre with yeah. that patient, with them having nowhere to go. So which means you can't send because there's literally a patient in theatres recovering. That is quite dangerous because it takes away your ability to deal with life-threatening emergencies that walk through the door. The other bit of the on-call is non-theatres. Because you circumnavigated that. You said, yeah, you said, it took you us said, right back to our comfort zone. You took out the easy, <laughs> like the easy nice... recovery one. What do we get called to do on the wards? The who needs an anaesthetist can vary quite radically. I would break that down into the surgical, medical and more intensive care anaesthetic side of things. Surgical, you'll get bleeps about patients who need to be seen for theatre, patients who may need to be seen for a list the next day. Then you've got the medical stuff. So this can be a little bit more complex. Definitely where discussing with senior colleagues who have experience of this comes in handy. Complex medical patients who may need assessment for cannulas, cannulas is the big one, but also for longer line insertion, central line insertion, sometimes for investigations such as lumbar punctures, sometimes for scans we need to provide sedation, and then the crossover of the medical and surgical providing sedation for procedures done in things like A&E. Which will vary based on trust and what your consultant's happy with. You can ask for the patient to be brought to theatre and sedate them there, like Rosie was saying earlier. I was going to say most of the places that I've worked in have rules that you don't sedate people outside of theatre. You just bring them to theatre. Either A&E can take responsibility and do that themselves without your involvement, or you do it and you take full responsibility and bring them to theatre. That varies depending on where you're working and what the norm is in yeah. that place. Did you mention cannulas? Oh, cannulas. the big cannula yeah. debate. It is a big debate. Cannulas on the wards. What are some of the opinions that you've heard? This is a really tricky one and it depends on your individual views on it, right? Some people see it as quite a nice, rewarding task to do because you can usually sort the problem out and this is a patient usually who has not had some vital part of their treatment or monitoring or whatever because no one's been able to get a cannula in. If you can go and be the person who solves that situation, great, but it does take you away from the other things that you're supposed to be doing. 
It's a bit of a tricky one. There are situations, and I mean, we've all heard them, where you're not quite getting maybe all the facts. You're then taking on responsibility for that patient when there are other people in the hospital who might be better suited to trying that task. Because of the amount of procedures we do, we likely look to in the hospital as one of the levels up or at the level at the very top in some cases. It is actually important to see your value in that and actually you can improve that patient's journey and that team's journey quite a lot. The issues that come about are that you've got duties to patients in recovery in theatre and you also have a duty that if you are going to be intubating someone at 6am that you need to be fresh so if you do all the cannulas in the hospital you will not be doing that and actually you will be probably providing a slightly worse service so it is a balance What I like to do is take a triage and make sure it's gone up the correct escalation system. If it has, then I will say I will get to it when I can and I'll put it down on the list of priorities and I will ask what the cannula is for. Someone who is having IV antibiotics day five, completely hemodynamically stable, is different to someone who needs to have epilepsy medications they can't take orally and they are IV. Not all all cannulas are equal. Not all cannulas are equal. So you can prioritise it by asking some triage questions. It's not a simple case of yes or no, they need a cannula. And you can use it as a learning opportunity. That person at the end of the phone, can you prepare all the cannulation stuff? If possible, can you get me an ultrasound, depending on the hospital? And can you be by the bed space? And we'll have a learning opportunity together. I have to confess that I've never done that. I've got a fear that I'll do that and then I won't be able to do it. Them seeing you fail might make them feel better. That's true. I think what you said about triaging calls is very important. I actually moved my threshold to go help with cannulas much lower when I was working at a sickle cell centre because I just found it was just horrendous for the patients and my empathy for the patients skyrocketed while I was there. It is important as a novice to make sure you're triaging and asking about the patients. There were times when I was very junior where I accepted to go and do a cannula, I went to see the patient and they were barely responsive. Got the nurse to do some obs, they were crushingly hypotensive massively tachycardic and low drop the GCS and they're basically peri-arrest so I had to put out a 2222 call. I think you've made a nice point there as well that there's a patient on the end of this request yeah, right? absolutely and I think if you cannot do it because you're busy or you can't get there. You give them another option. Exactly. Helping them to solve the problem is as important as solving the problem yourself. Something that I wanted to also make a point about which is whatever your answer is to whether or not you can do something Be nice to your colleagues. Mm -hmm. We are so protected as anaesthetic trainees compared to the other specialties in the hospital. We have so much more support. Probably the other people in the hospital at work that day are having a worse shift than you. So if you can't help them, be nice about it. And as you said, give them another option or say, you know, I'll try, but I might not be able to, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you're right. They could be having a worst day. It's probably as if they're, especially if they're F1, it's probably the worst day of their life, especially as we're coming up to um, August where they haven't been able to do a task and they're unsure of how to escalate. And they might be escalating to you prematurely. It doesn't mean you have to speak to them without kindness and compassion and say, oh, sorry, mate, you're having a tough day, um, but here's the actual escalation route. You never know what is going on in other people's lives. Answering leads with kindness. So after a conversation with a mentor who was a ITU and anaesthetics consultant, I asked her how she dealt with it when she was a junior reg. She said she just changed how she answers the phone and doesn't say, what do you want? She answers, hi, I'm Owen. 
I'm the anaesthetist uncle, how can I help? And that just completely changes the interaction that you have with someone. And people are quite like rabbit headlights. If you are mean to them, they may shut down and be unable to think. Be kind when you're answering bleep. Important thing, just to bring it back to our novice experience, you will get bleeps and things told to you and questions asked of you that you are not sure are within your remit. And in that situation, rather than say, no, that doesn't sound like my job, click. Gather that information and then you can say, I'm not sure this is part of our role. I will talk to one of my seniors and call you back and take their contact information. Because yeah. I found that really useful because you do get weird and wonderful bleeps about stuff that isn't necessarily your role or job, but at least you can then triage it with your seniors, confirm that, and then relay that information to help that person solve their problem. And then that also means that you don't have to commit yes or no to anything. Yeah. One of the bleeps that we mentioned was that you'll get called about pre-ops, and it is a weird power dynamic situation to be in where you could be called by a general surgical consultant as the new novice that's just completed the IAC. And it's important to try and flatten that hierarchy in your head so that you're still taking an S-bar of what is the situation, aka what's the ASA of this patient, what's the surgery you want to do and how urgent is it, what is the background of this patient, your assessment, are they hemodynamically stable, and the recommendation is when do you want to do it. Is this a case you're telling me about tomorrow? Is this a case that you want an anaesthetic consultant review for because you're unsure if the risk versus benefits are worth it? Or is this a case that needs to happen now and I need to mobilise my team? And if so, we'll get onto it later, there's some flows and politics with CPOD to work out. So don't just pick up the phone, consulting urologist is saying, I need to get a stent in. You go, yeah, yeah okay, yep, yeah, uh, MRN. And because I was guilty of that when I first started, I was like, oh my God, these, these consultants are calling me. Okay, yes, yes, sir, we'll, yes, madam, we will do the operation for you. And actually, no, you are an anaesthetist do the SBAR, gather information, pre-assess the patient, and then make the recommendations that you feel. If you're feeling pressured or people are rude to you, escalate it. We've just said that about candlers. Don't be rude to other people. That includes not taking rudeness yourself. So yeah. do escalate politics or rudeness. What else goes on in the hospital that we get involved in? The big one is emergencies. Ooh. I think well, we've had a whole podcast about that, haven't we? I know we have. You are the start of and finish of every emergency algorithm there is as the anaesthetist, which sounds terrifying, but ultimately, either there's a problem with airway, so you can't really get past that, or someone's tried everything else and they need to call you with a gateway to either a surgical plan or intensive care. It's not quite as terrifying as it sounds it gets across your role in emergency is an important one things need to happen usually relatively quickly in terms of assessment when you're on call do you deal with many cardiac arrests and how do you deal with them as anesthetics i know they're sometimes covered by itu depending on hospital so i guess it varies i wouldn't run necessarily because you're going to arrive and possibly be having a cardiac arrest yourself but obviously you need to go quickly and if you're tied up with something else that means phoning whoever else you're on with and telling them that you can't go or making some arrangement in your team right so that you know yeah. who's attending what when i was a novice we didn't go to any cardiac arrest calls so actually the first time i went to a cardiac arrest call as an anesthetist i was a ct2 and i thought I'm not sure what I'm supposed to really do here. Am I supposed to just put an eye gel in? Do I have to intubate everybody? It takes a while, I think, to get into the swing of things. And if somebody is managing the airway 
and you're happy with what they're doing to manage the airway and actually there's nobody else that can lead the situation, I don't think there's anything wrong in doing that. But I do think our default is to go to the head end because that's where we feel most comfortable. That can be tricky in most wards because the bed is right up against the wall. So you have to get everyone to kind of help take the brakes off the bed, take the back off the bed so you can actually get to the patient's airway. If they're in cardiac arrest, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to find that no one's put an eye gel in normally when I arrive. Just start with putting an eye gel in. Gather information. Gather information, exactly. If you've got adequate and tidal CO2 and chest rise with an eye gel. I don't think there's anything wrong in just gathering information and seeing where you are before you decide whether or not you actually need to intubate the patient. In some cases, it's really obvious. Obviously, if there's lots of stuff coming out of the airway, if it's a young person with a primarily hypoxic arrest, obviously you're going to be thinking that you probably need to intubate them. But there's nothing wrong with starting with an eye gel and just seeing what the situation is before you do that. And that's what the Airway 2 trial shows, essentially, mm-hmm. that they had interventions by paramedics of either intubation or eye gel. The discharge from hospital rate was not statistically significant between eye gel versus ET tube. Rosie's come up with some situations where the patient would have been excluded from that trial, for example, aspiration. But it does show that if in doubt, you can put an eye gel in and then decide when you intubate. And yes, we're not paramedics, we are anaesthetists. But it's just to try and get a point across. You can deliver that standard of care whilst you're trying to think. The second thing she came on to was ergonomics. This is a different environment to theatres. You'll be doing things in ways that aren't normal. And one of those is that at the head of the bed, you usually have room. So create room for yourself. Move the bed away. Get the patient in between pulled up so that you can manage the railway a little bit better and make sure that you can familiarise yourself with your environment to make sure you know where the suction is and that it's on. And also familiarise yourself with the team and get one allocated team member to be either your ODP so that they can assist with airway stuff and and get that for you so you're not having to go shout for someone to go back and forth, back and forth, or get your ODP fast bleed down so that they can come and help you. I think this is the point that I was trying to make as well about not necessarily going in all guns blazing and going straight to the head end say you're on your own at that arrest as the airway person and you know that you want to intubate that person there is a certain amount of prep that needs to be done if you've ever handed somebody a laryngoscope in a packet and tried to watch them put it together or turn it on or get it out the packet or open a water circuit and the little connection bit drops on the floor trying to do tell somebody else how to do that is quite difficult so if you have an eye gel in and someone else is doing that and it's fine and you've got time to prep that stuff yourself, that's what I would do. Yeah, my default position would be eye gel and water circuit yeah. with an HME filter on it and CO2 tracing. Agreed. It's such an in-depth topic that you could go to. I think just a few tips and tricks we want to pass on is you don't always have to rush into the airway. Sort out your ergonomics. Eye gels, when suitable, are useful. Get an extra pair of hands you shouldn't be expecting too much to yourself. So if you need backup, call for backup. Yeah. What would a typical day on on-call look like? Or should we do CPOD first? I think a typical day is CPOD, basically, isn't it? How does CPOD work? And what is CPOD? 
What's it stand oh, for? Oh, I always found this really confusing. Why does it even stand for what it stands for? So it's the Confidential Inquiry into Perioperative Deaths. It's yeah. to do with the provision of emergency surgery, right? Yeah. And they looked into outcomes and how they should be categorising, and this is where the CPOG categories come from. Which goes from life and limb-threatening down to can be done when the team's available. How do people get booked on then? So normally the booking team, whoever that is, needs to speak to you and the theatre team. Always make sure when you're speaking to people on the phone that they've actually spoken to those other people. Because otherwise you'll go and pre-op them, but the theatre team may not, if we said out of hours, they may be on limited theatre team and have to call people in. Usually what happens on your day is that you will get handed over to either the sex department or in theatre if there's a night case going on, where you'll learn about the cases that are booked on for the next day. There'll then be a meeting where all the teams will attend. So if you've got vascular, urology, gen surgery, and then they argue or they maybe critically discuss who should go <laughs> first in terms of how much of a priority their patient is. And then that will decide who's sending when, depending on if they've been anaesthetically pre-assessed or if there's anything to do. And in the meantime, you will then get emergency cases that then crop up, which, for example, if you had a child who's broken their forearm and now you can't feel their pulse, that might end up trumping an appendix. However, that's two different teams. That's TNO and that's gen surgery. So if gen surgery is saying, no, we still need to do our appendix, you need to make the decision, Rosie. What do you say to them? No, thank you. So I think you can really easily get caught up in these political conversations and you often will be asked because you're an anaesthetist what one you think should go first. I would very much push it back to the surgical teams because it's not really appropriate for us to be making those decisions and I would ask them to speak to each other very much remain neutral on it. Obviously, if one patient is ready and the other one isn't, sometimes there are obvious answers. But if it's a real disagreement about who's going first, it's really not appropriate for us to be making that decision. Get the two consultants from the two teams to speak to each other and decide between themselves and you anaesthetise whoever appears in front of you. I think it's also important to make sure that someone relays the outcome of that conversation to you. I've definitely yes. been in theatre waiting for an outcome and then suddenly a third surgeon has arrived and says, are you doing my case? And I go, who are you? What case are we talking about? Communication is such a big thing in on-calls at every little point we've talked about, be it emergencies, be it those cannula calls, bleeps, talking to your team, calling for help. Coordinating emergency cases in theatres is a communication nightmare at times. And it's so easy for things to get missed and wires to get crossed and people to talk, have conversations around you, above you, below you. And then you end up not knowing what's going on. Keep yourself in the loop. Try to keep an open line of communication and find out the outcomes of these conversations. With the politics, if you get caught up in it, speak to your consultant and they will deal with it. I would add to the calling your consultant. Sometimes the surgical teams can get a bit fraught that CPOD is not operating because you're out doing various emergency intubations, you're in A&E, you're doing transfers to CT, etc. You don't want the, the surgical consultant to be calling your consultant, stamping their feet and saying none of the operations are happening and for them not to be aware of what is going on. So if you foresee that you're going to have about another three hours of not doing any CPOD because you're out and about and you foresee that's going to be a political problem, just let your consultant know. We're kind of wrapping up, but are there any tips and tricks for novice on calls? I've harped on about it before, but communication, 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 communication. 
if in doubt, if you think you should be calling someone, call them. There is always someone there who you can call for advice, call for help. It's, it's very important you do so. I think mine are about well-being. Mm. I don't know about anyone else, but I'm always significantly less resilient with a worse mood and clinically probably less good when I'm hungry, thirsty, needing the loo, needing a sit down. Take breaks when you can. If you've got half an hour between cases, don't spend half an hour documenting something that you could document quite quickly at another time. Make sure you have something to eat. Make sure you bring snacks with you that you actually want to eat throughout the day. And are accessible. And are accessible, yeah. Don't necessarily need storing in a fridge is always a good tip as well. I usually food prep before a set of on-calls because I know that, for example, on a night shift, I'm not going to want to be making food. You just need to make sure that you have as many breaks as you can and you're as rested as you can because you will feel better you will be nicer to other people and genuinely less things will go wrong. Yeah, completely agree with that. Looking after your basic human needs is so important on shift because you need to go and perform at a high level. In order to do that, you need to make sure that you've met your need to not piss yourself when you're in theatre. Because if you can't leave theatre, a two-hour case turns into quickly a three-hour case. Lastly, on the optimization, we will do it on the wellbeing episode, but just in case you haven't had to listen to that, we will be listing in Michael Farquhar's document of how to optimise yourself for Perfect. a shift. And it's 15 minutes, and it just talks you through a lot of different things And like what Rosie was saying about making sure you look after your basic human needs, he covers that in really good detail. Hello from the editing room. I hope you've enjoyed that brief introduction to the anaesthetic on call. In the bio, we're going to leave some links that includes a great resource from the Association of Anaesthetists where they go into the standard day of anaesthetic registrar on call. You can extrapolate what that would mean for the novice. We also have some well-being resources including links to the Association of Anaesthetists Fight Fatigue campaign and that paper from Michael Farquhar that I mentioned about how to look after yourself on night shifts. I've personally been taught by him. I found that to be one of the most useful well-being interventions that I've made myself. I also have included a link to the Airway 2 trial that I mentioned earlier. Our next episode is episode 11, Anesthetic Emergencies, and it includes some of the situations that you might face whilst you're on call. I hope you check out those well-being links and for now it's Novpod out see you later